And so today, as a church, we are welcoming and celebrating Rosie Popperwell uh, into the church family, and we're sharing in the joy of Jack and Sarah and Noah. So if you are here as a guest for that event, particular welcome to you. It's lovely to have you here with us. I stopped wrote in my notes for this bit of my talk, uh, just the sentence, Jack and Sarah are very strange. And then I thought, that sounds rude. I don't mean that. What I mean is this, for a young and bright family of their age, they've clearly made some strange and unusual decisions. And maybe if you're here as their friend, that's something that you ponder. You know, they live in Crosby up there by the sea, uh, where we all would love to be. And they come all the way to church here. And you know, this isn't even a proper church. It's a school hall with questionable cleanliness. Uh, it's, uh, and with the building work going on at the moment, it's a bit like coming to church in prison, isn't it? Uh, in the 80s. Anyway, it's, uh, they must be exceptionally and unusually committed to serving the God they believe in and other people around them because they're making these unusual decisions. And maybe even that's led to tension in your relationship with them They made decisions you wouldn't have made. Well, we have been reading um, in, and learning recently from a book of the Bible called Acts, which is the story of the very first Christians, and we've been seeing what we can learn from them. What, once God sends his Holy Spirit into the world, into the lives of Christian believers, what's the new normal? What's normal for Christians? Now, most of, we're most of the way through the book now, and the last time we saw Paul, who was a pioneer leader, handing the baton of his work, hence my picture, on to church leaders, basically saying, I'm sort of done now. I'm passing the baton to people who are in churches to keep going with the work, to spread the message and to live it out. And so you're joining us at a slightly strange point in the book, because after he's handed over that responsibility, why are there still seven more chapters about him? What's more, his behavior is a bit strange. He spent loads of chapters traveling around the world and spreading the gospel, but this bit looks like a retreat. He's going back to Jerusalem where it all started. It's like a long, depressing walk home, leaving the exciting work to other people. We feel like as we read Acts, we've left the action behind. He's passed that to someone else. And now part of that's because in the way God works in the world today, churches is not buildings but groups of people who trust Jesus and love each other we are the action in a sense we don't need to read Acts to find out the action of God Paul passed that to churches and that baton is still passed on from generation to generation church families make the action of God's work and we still do but this story of the rest of Paul's life is really filling in this if we're passing the baton to normal groups of Christians, what baton is being passed? What responsibility is being given? How does he show us what we should all be doing in order to complete this task we've been given by Jesus? So as we're filled by the Spirit, we take the message of God's full and free welcome to the world what is life doing that like? That's what these last few chapters of Acts are about. And what we're going to see, and why I talked about the Popperwell family, is that the model Paul passes on to people, normal Christians in churches, is making unusual, 
sometimes very difficult, occasionally extremely painful decisions, living that way for the sake of other people hearing about Jesus and for the sake of Christians who might be in trouble. That is the model he gives us. Doing hard things for the sake of people hearing about Jesus and for the sake of Christians who need help. That is the Christian ethic he passes to us. Choose what's difficult if it's going to help people hear about Jesus and it's going to help the church who's struggling. That shouldn't be surprising to us because the whole thing we believe is that Jesus gave his life so that we could know God. And so the pattern of the church is that the church gives its life so other people can know God. So the model for a church that wants to participate, to join in with the spirit, loving people and loving the world, is the laying down of things in life that might really matter in order for other people to meet God. And I wanted to say that all before we have the Bible read to us, because as we hear the reading, you'll think maybe this looks just like some of Paul's travels, like his holiday itinerary, even goes to some places that are nowadays holiday destinations, and then a strange sort of religious ritual that he goes through. What's going on? And the thing that you want to look out for, as Lara comes to read this to us, is he knows some tough things have to be done for people to hear about Jesus. And so he chooses those things. That is the model for how this thing God's doing goes forward. And that matters to people that you love if you're here as a guest today. So hopefully, as we look at it, it will explain some of their strange decisions. So Lara's going to come and read the Bible to us now. It will be a real help to you if you can follow on with what I'm saying. Like I said, it's a slightly confusing story. So if you haven't got a Bible and you'd like one, just wave a hand. The hosts are primed, ready to give them out. Don't be embarrassed about doing that. And Lara will tell you where in the Bible to find what we're reading. So once you've got the Blue Church Bibles... We're looking at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 26. And in these Blue Church Bibles, it's page 1118, 1118. Starting at verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples that stayed there and stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul to not go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage to Tyre and landed at Ptolemais. 
where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people that were there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Am I not ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. And they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informing that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So what do we tell you? There are four men with us who have made us a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pray and pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are in living obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them about our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Thank you, Lara. I do have written copies in Farsi. Dan, where are you? Would you just be able to give those out? They're in my bag, which is not a very useful place for anyone who wants to read one, so let Dan give those out. Great. Where are my notes? do not want just me to talk off the top of my head. Okay, we've had the reading. Here is a cultural reference for British people of my age. You will understand this story. <clears throat> a friend of mine two or three years ago went to see this singer, Van Morrison, at Liverpool Philharmonic Hall, and shockingly, in the concert, he did not sing the song, Brown-Eyed Girl. Yes, he will understand. For context, that's really the song he's famous for. Sorry, Van, if you're listening, but it's true. Uh, and when the crowd shouted out for him to sing it at his encore, they were all shouting out, Brown-Eyed Girl, sing Brown-Eyed Girl. He just refused to do an encore and walked off the stage. Apparently, he's quite a grumpy man. Well, this list of places that Paul visits in Acts 21, this should have been a tour. 
Because Paul was the very first person to take the message about Jesus to these people. And many of them were crushed and exploited. And so this message that through Jesus, God himself will come into your life. And they'd formed these new communities of equality and hope for the future. They were delighted to hear this message, these people. And it was Paul who brought it to them. And I was tracing his way back through the places that had been affected by his work to Jerusalem. It should have been a chance for him to stand and take applause, to sing his greatest hits, to remind them, encourage them, bring the magic, bring the fire. They'd heard of him. Some of them had never met him, just heard of him, but this was their chance to meet the amazing apostle. We get a nice little mention of a guy called Philip, who's played a major part as a servant of the poor, as a persecuted Christian, as a powerful missionary. Now he's settled down at Caesarea with a family. There should be joy and fellowship here, and I think there is, but Paul is not up for singing Brown-Eyed Girl. Instead, in fact, he seems a little bit of a rush. More than that, they keep saying to him through the insight given by the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Agabus, this guy, actually acts out Paul being tied up, seized by Jewish people, and remember Paul was Jewish himself, and handed over to what they would perceive as godless people for punishment. So there's a head up here, it's like, Paul, what you're heading into here is frightening and also deeply humiliating. This story turns from being a victory tour to a warning. That's caused his first visit, and I sort of think if I'd gone there, I'd have stayed for a few weeks, had a few pina coladas at least. But Paul says to them, don't make this harder in verse 13. I have to do what is right. You shouldn't be weeping about it or trying to hold on to me. You see, he's not taking glory and thanks and celebration for the good things he's done, even though he's the most effective missionary in the history of the church. He's not taking gifts and kindness from the many grateful people he meets. He pushes on to do the hard thing he thinks is necessary for his phrase, I love this phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, I'm not going to stand and take applause and comfort because for Jesus' name to be honoured in the world, I've got to go and do this hard thing. And that, that's what matters to me. And that is the baton he is passing. That is the example he is giving to the churches. The Christian life is choosing the hard thing if that's what's necessary for Jesus to be known and honoured. That is the lifestyle we've been given to carry together. Did you notice? That's ours to carry, even when well-meaning people around us, people we love and respect, spiritual people they are in Acts 21, think we're making life too difficult for ourselves. But the mission we have been given is to choose the hard thing so that more people can know Jesus. For his phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus can be known and honoured, understood. Now we have to be careful here. I was reading this novel recently called The Raptures. 
sort of niche. It's written like about the type of community I grew up in, which is very conservative religious community. It's a great book. And uh, in the book, the little girl who's growing up in this very conservative religious community, she, she, they really believe this in that community. They're really like, yes, you have to do the hard thing. They believe it so hard that she begins to think, if God thinks you're looking forward to it too much, he'll take it away because you must do the hard thing. So it's possible to get this wrong. Some Christian subcultures are like that. Paul's life, did you notice, is not empty of joy, full of friendship, fellowship, deep connection, prayers with friends on the beach. It's not a life that is sucked free of everything that God gives us. God is not anti-enjoyment of good things. Denying ourselves good things just for the sake of denying ourselves good things, that is not something the Bible recommends. It says these gifts are given to us for God to enjoy. But what it does say, the model he does give us, is when we could do something about God's great mission to make disciples of all nations, when we could step up and continue Jesus' work of spreading the news about him through all over the all over the world building the church when we have that option we should do that even when it's hard even when it costs even when it risks important things to us even when sensible nice people around us who like us and who are on our side even when those people think that we're wrong you know, one day, we do believe, I was talking to the interns about this a couple of weeks ago in our time together every week, we do believe one day every single person who has ever lived will meet Jesus. And they will meet Jesus in all his glory as the ruler of everything there is. And for his enemies, that will be a terrible day. But for those who know and trust him, it will be the moment of joy we are made for. Now listen, if that's you, no one, not one martyr, not one lonely person, not one bullied Christian will see Jesus on that day and think, oh, he wasn't really worth all the hassle. No one will think that when they see Jesus. Everyone will see him and think, Every single hard thing that passed was worth the glory it's now revealed to me. And can I say, I spend a lot of time, it's the job of being a pastor, with people asking me for advice about what they should do with their lives. It's a very Western wealthy privilege of having choice about what to do with our lives. And it's a good thing to think about, you know, think about it carefully. Usually when people are having those discussions, the first question people ask is, would I like to do? In fact, they spend ages. It's very confusing reading your own motives. So I have a lot of discussions with people and they say, uh, I just can't work out what I would like to do. It's tricky. I think it's just not the right first question. The first right question we should ask is, how can I, or we if we're a family, fit in and join him with God's mission to the world. And then we can begin to ask, well, how do my gifts and preferences and priorities fit into that? 
We ask that first. If God is doing this thing, what should I be doing to join in with it? Now, the reason we don't answer that, ask that question, I think, is when you ask that question, you begin to get a whole lot of answers or things which are, you do not want to do. Hard things, challenging things that don't fit with the type of thing you like. That's why we avoid the question. But Paul says, now that I know the right thing to do to serve God, stop telling me that it's hard. I'm going to do the right thing to do to serve God. I understand what my job is in this, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to choose the hard thing. <clears throat> no, the real temptation here as a preacher is to get a bit overly specific. It's to start saying, so if you're choosing between this and this, you should choose this. We'll do a bit of that later on, but only as examples. Actually, Paul had this strong sense of how he was meant to serve God. Many of us don't have that, and we need the help of the church and prayer and wisdom from others to really discern that. And if you're in that process, let, let us help you. And you might be saying, well, this all seems very simple to Paul, but it's often hard to tell for me what the best thing to do is to serve God. I get that. I would say that just thinking about what matters from this point of view will help. At least it will rule some things out and get some things in their right place. But sometimes what you're supposed to do, what you could do to bring honour to the name of Jesus, sometimes that is obvious. It's just hard. And the concept here is quite simple. If there is an obvious thing you could do that would help honour Jesus, choose that hard thing. That's top of the list. You see what Paul says? Uh, Agabus says to him, you're going to be imprisoned for serving Jesus. And his reply is, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I will choose what's hard, even what's really hard, if I'm sure it is going to show people the glory and goodness and grace of that amazing name, Jesus Christ. It's the first thing we see. Choose hard things for the big picture. <clears throat> Here's the second thing we see. Paul is a victim here of ridiculous rumours. I couldn't think of a ridiculous rumour this week. I was trying to think of like a rumour that got out of hand and ruined everything. Uh, but I couldn't think of one, so I just googled. And I found this, even though it's not... I thought it was funny. It's not really to illustrate the point. 20 famous rumours we all wish were true. Okay. Number two, Nicolas Cage is a time-travelling vampire. Do you wish that was true? I mean, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it. It'd be interesting. Or three, Keanu Reeves is immortal. We all wish that was true, apparently. Or George Washington wore wooden teeth. That is true. Would you click the link? Anyway, the next bit of the story is very strange, and in it, Paul is the victim of a rumour that gets out of hand. Now, here's the context here. The first Christians were all Jews who had thought until they came to trust Jesus, the way to get to God is by obeying Jewish laws. That's a version of religion that many people believe today. They think you follow particular rules or pillars or laws and that's how God will be pleased with you. And so the message of the gospel was very shocking to them. Jesus is not just calling you to repentance to try and please God, to turn back to God more fully, but faith, 
to trust Jesus and Jesus alone to put you right with God. That's what he's calling you to. And so there's no law you keep, no moral rule, no religious observance that gets you to God. Yes, repent, turn to God, admit your life belongs to him, but then believe, trust Jesus has done everything to bring you to God. Well, the first Christians were all Jewish, so they just assumed, well, we know we don't need to follow laws anymore to be right with God, but they are an important part of our cultural life, so we'd like to keep practicing them. But then, as we've read in Acts, people have started becoming Christians who had never been Jewish. What about them? And I'll be honest with you, it's not the church's finest moment. There's a bit of argy-bargy between two important people. You'd have loved to be in the meeting. Paul versus Peter. It's all like pistols at dawn. But it ended up with Paul himself, a deeply observant Jew, shouting from the rooftops around the world, if Jesus puts you entirely right with God, you do not after that have to adopt a whole lot of laws from the Old Testament that Jewish people followed. And in fact, he spends a lot of his letters, which we have recorded in the New Testament, pointing out that Christians don't need to do that. Those things are there to get us ready for Jesus, to point us to him, but they don't need to be followed today. Well, given all of that, this story, meeting the Jewish church, starts as you'd expect. Paul goes back to base camp and says, listen guys, lots of Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish, have become Christians, and the church are delighted, in verse 20, the Jewish church. Everyone's got their head around that now. People who aren't Jewish, they can be part of this too. Good. Then they say, though, we have a problem, Paul, and it's a problem with you. A rumour has got out of hand. Lots of Jewish people have become Christians, and they still love our Jewish laws. But because you, Paul, are so committed to non-Jewish people becoming Christians, rumours are spreading. They're untrue rumours that you are telling Jewish people they have to stop being Jewish. They mustn't do it anymore. That rumor is spreading. You know, the thing you're doing is right. You're involving people who aren't Jewish in the church. Great, we're all for that. But it's leading to this rumor getting out of hand that you're going around telling Jewish people to abandon their heritage. And that's not right. And it's causing us, Paul, quite a lot of trouble as we live here in the center of Judaism. People look at us and say, you guys are following the man who wants to destroy our way of life. So listen, Paul, something you can do to help us. We've got four people here who are about to follow this bit of the Jewish law for Kenes called the Nazarite vow, and it involves shaving your head, paying money to the temple, committing to do certain things. Could you do the vow too? So could you shave your head, you pay for them to take the vow, and that will stop us getting into trouble for you being here. It will prove to everybody you do respect our laws after all. Now, I'm not sure how I would have reacted to this. I think it's a surprise what happens. I think I might have started by saying to the Jewish church, well, you say there's four people still taking this Jewish vow. Bring them in. I'll tell them they don't need to follow Jewish customs anymore, and then none of us will need to pay money or shave our heads. Shall we do that? Just like have a meeting, I'll make a PowerPoint, explain it all, Old Testament, New Testament, they'll get it right. I might have done that. That didn't work. I might have got a bit angry and said, listen, everyone, 
I've been around the world being sort of whipped and flogged and stuff like that, telling people they don't have to do these things anymore. I'm not about to start now. Or I might have finally said, hey, everyone, you can do this if you want, but I'm free in Christ, so I'm not going to spend my money and shave my head just because you want to do it. Your monkeys, your circus. But Paul just did it. He spent his life traveling the world and offering the gospel to people without having to obey the law. But as soon as he was back in Jerusalem, they asked him and he did it. Actually, some people you read about him say he'd sort of given up on the gospel and he went back and just reverted to type, being a legalistic Jewish person. I don't think that's what's happening. I think the thing that matters to him, Paul, beyond his own comfort, beyond his own freedom and money, is if he can help this church. He's like, if anything I am doing is undermining you being able to share your faith in your community, it's putting up a barrier to your role in God's mission of discipling people where you are, making people hate you, I'll do whatever it takes to help you. If it helps those under pressure Christians lift up the name of Jesus, you just do it. No questions asked. You just do it. It cost him money. I tried to do a bit of research to work out how much money it would cost to pay this vow price for four people. Quite a lot. But all the stories disagree how much. It definitely would have cost him pride, having his head shaved, marked out round the place. It could even have cost him his reputation, couldn't it? Oh, Paul's confused. He's gone round the world teaching this. Now he's changed his mind. And let me tell you something very depressing for Paul. We'll see next week in the next story. It didn't even work. It got right to the end of the purification period and people made up another crazy rumour about him and they came for him and the other Christians anyway. So he went out of his way to help these Christians and it didn't even improve their PR. But this is another Christian ethic a way of making choices. If something is what you know is necessary, what you need to do to serve the gospel going to the world, you do it. We've talked about that. But here's another one. I think a slightly more obscure one that I don't see people apply as much these days. If there's something you could do to make life easier for struggling Christians, you do it. Particularly struggling Christians who are connected and committed to, as Paul is, to the Jerusalem church. They're his people. And particularly struggling Christians who you are connected and committed to, who need you to do something to help with their mission. You just do it. It says at the end of the passage, verse 25, they've written to all the Gentiles' churches and they basically said to them, please don't do these things anymore because it sort of embarrasses us in front of Jewish people. So could you not uh, eat food sacrificed to idols and not eat blood because Jewish people don't do that? And then at the end of the passage it says, and also could you abstain from sexual immorality, which seems like an odd thing to add to the list. That's just wrong. You know, they shouldn't need a letter saying, oh, it will embarrass us if you're sexually immoral. But that is one of the reasons why 
we take our sexual ethics seriously. Because it puts Christians in conservative cultures under huge pressure if they think other Christians around the world are liberal and wishy-washy about things that matter in those cultures. It's interesting. The church debates about sexuality as if those people don't exist. And we say it's important to stick to the Bible, which it is. But it's also important that we don't throw brothers and sisters in very different conservative cultures under the bus by making them look like they're connected to this thing that's destroying their culture. And the, church, the Jewish church just feels free to ask, just to say, you need to stop doing these things. It's undermining what we are doing. It's very demanding. But it's the type of relationship we have with each other. People make hard choices. And this is one reason why we do. Struggling Christians under pressure would be helped if I did it. It's particularly important when I help them with their witness. Let's give a very practical example. Some people in our church over uh, July and then September are going on teams to do mission to help churches in other cultures. We've been invited to help them in particular ways and a group of people are going to different places, Greece and Lebanon and places like that. When you get there, you may discover that in this place, the culture, not the Christian culture, the culture expects you not to drink alcohol and not to smoke, not to eat particular things, to dress in a particular way. Now listen, it's really true that in Christ you are free to do those things. Yeah. Once you're in Christ, you're free to wear what you like. It doesn't make any difference to your relationship with God. You're free to drink and eat what you like. Jesus made quite a big fuss of that. It doesn't make any difference to your relationship with God. You're free in that way. But in that situation, you use your freedom to do whatever those Christians ask you to do in order to help their mission. That is what we do. I once, uh, years ago, used to take mission trips to a very conservative part of Eastern Europe. And in that culture, um, often these costs fall on women more than men, I will say. That is just how it works, I'm afraid. But in that culture that we went to, um, only particular types of women uncovered their arms. It was a hot country, but a woman with uncovered arms was viewed as someone who is basically a sex worker. And so the, the Christians we said basically said, if you're going to be part of our church here for a while, could you cover your arms up? It was interesting how many people replied saying, yes, but I get really hot here. It's really hard for me to cover my arms up. It's a big cost. If it helps them, you do it. If you're supposed to be helping Christians and they say this would help us, you do what they ask. It's what you do if Christians you're supposed to be helping need you to do it. Can I say particularly this is a generational challenge to us. That's why I'm saying more about this than the first point. Because we are really taught doing what's uncomfortable for you is bad for you. Because of like my trauma. Because of my mental health. The cost to me is too high. We are taught, oh, if you're in a situation that's making your, you uncomfortable, get out. Or explain to other people that they need to make allowances for you. Now listen, if someone is controlling you, forcing you, using spiritual authority to make you doubt yourself, is wrong. But in a situation where Christians under pressure need you to be somewhere, to do something, 
something, to eat something, to pay something, you do it. Helping others matters more than what is best for you. Let's do a later in life application here, one that actually doesn't apply to our church, but I think it's a good example of the type of way this might kick in. At our church, we want to welcome people to attend here wherever you live around Liverpool. But some of our church partners that we went away with for, uh, for the weekend a couple of weeks ago are doing ministry in estates in particular areas where they want to reach a particular place. So I say someday you leave Christchurch and you end up joining a church like that. And uh, our friends doing ministry on the estate say the thing that's really important to us in reaching these people is that everybody who's part of it lives here. I understand. These are often tough places. You'd rather live in a bigger house, in a nicer area, near better schools and beside a park. But what should you do? The answer is obvious. It's not even really something that requires very much wisdom. You live where the Christians who are struggling on mission need you to live for their mission. Now, interestingly, you're free not to do it. The thing that church leader can't do is say, are you a proper Christian if you don't live here? They are disallowed from doing that. But there is a call to use your freedom. They can ask. They can say, We as Christians, you are connected to, are on mission here. Choose the hard thing. I think in our church, we get the first one of these principles at work. The first one I talked about, if if something needs doing for the name of Jesus, you choose this even if it's hard. As Western Christians, we're not really good at choosing hard things, but we get that's an important thing to do. If it will help us spread the gospel, we should do it. The second one is so far out of the range of what we are thinking about, I think it's like shocking to us. We're so individualistic. We basically think, I will make more money, I will have a good work-life balance, I will have more space. And this question, will this help the weak Christians I am connected to in their mission, doesn't even like enter our heads. It's just like miles away from anywhere we're even considering. Here's a really practical one that does apply to our church in passing. And this is sort of like cat amongst the pigeons and then I'm moving on. Our church is full of people who struggle as Christians. And the main way they're helped is by getting together with other Christians, usually in small groups. And the question we most often ask about those groups is, am I feeling energetic enough to go? Am I too tired? Am I too busy? It's quite far away, isn't it, from asking, what hard thing can I do to help struggling Christians? So just the opposite end of the scale. Now, I can't stand here today and say, you have to obey this law to be closer to God. The gospel rules me out from saying that. But the model is that we gladly make these costly decisions for the sake of our family, who need our help to honour our Father's name. Now, if you are a guest, you may be wondering why people come to church in order to be told this, to give stuff up for Jesus. And that's not why people come. 
They don't come for me to tell them they should give stuff up for Jesus because nearly everybody in our church is already giving lots up for Jesus. They come to be reminded that Jesus is worth whatever you're giving up. Jesus told a story about a pearl buried in a field. It was the most beautiful, amazing pearl that anyone had ever seen. And what did a man do when he discovered it? He went away and sold everything he had in order to get hold of the pearl. And Jack and Sarah and many others in our church are daily making that same decision. Loving Jesus' name enough to do hard things and loving Jesus' family enough to do hard things, not because they think it gets some credit, but because they think Jesus is the pearl. He is beautiful. Knowing him, being loved by him, nothing is too much to sell to express to everybody how good he is. Yes, this is a call to remember that he is worth that and what it looks like to honour his name. But really what we're saying to you, if you're looking in, is this. Whatever strange decisions we make, and they may well be strange to you, we think, like Paul, Jesus is worth those decisions. And we hope that someday you will meet him and see his beauty too.